turn to the book of Isaiah. We're in Isaiah 65. We have been doing a study this summer of the story of the Bible in 16 verses. And today we're in Isaiah chapter 65. And um, I would just ask that you pray for me this morning. I'm a little under the weather, and so I'm, I'm feeling pretty good right now. Tylenol is, is a wonderful thing. Um, but you guys pray for me um, as, we're, as we're studying today. Um, Isaiah 65, and we're just going to walk through the entire chapter today. Uh, the, the verse uh, that is our focus is Isaiah 65, verse 17, uh, in which the Lord declares that he will create a new heavens and a new earth. And so that's what we're going to talk about today is the new creation. As we've been backing up from the Bible and looking at it from a 30,000 foot view, as we look at the forest of Scripture and we look at the big picture, we find ourselves now anticipating the new creation. This is the last portion of our study in the Old Testament. Okay, so we've been going all the way from Genesis to Isaiah. We've been all over the place in the Old Testament, and today uh, we are in Isaiah 65. So before we, before we begin, I want to pray. Um, for us, as we hear from God's word, and, um, and just be reminded today, I was thinking about this, and I was talking to Justin a minute ago, um, why are we here? Especially when we're sick, why are we here? I had to ask myself that question this morning, Josh, what are you doing? And the, the answer to that is, there's only one answer, we are here to worship and devote our hearts and our lives to Christ, who is risen from the dead, and who is making all things new. Um, we are not here this morning to try to impress people. I'm not here to try to um, impress you or to entertain you. We're here to study God's word, to hear from God's word, to respond to God's word in worship. And so let that, let's just be reminded of that as we're here and, and it's the summer and people are traveling and as things are slow. Be reminded of why you got up this morning. You are here today because there was a carpenter from Nazareth 2,000 years ago who was crucified for your sin, who declared himself to be the Son of God and was raised from the dead three days later. And if he's not alive this morning, then I'm not going to get up out of my bed, right? I mean, that's, if he's not alive, there's no point in being here. But we believe he is alive. We believe that Christ is risen and he, we owe our devotion and our lives to him. And so... With that, let's pray and ask God to bless this time as we study from the Word. Let's pray. Father, Lord, this morning I pray what we read in the call to worship from Psalm 86. Incline your ear, O Lord, and answer me, for I am poor and needy. There is no reason for you to listen to my prayer. There is nothing good in me. There is nothing moral in me. I am the chief of sinners. And I am not good enough to save myself. So, Father, I trust in, in Christ, and today I ask that you do not listen to my prayer or our prayers based on our own goodness or our own morality, but look to your right hand and see your Son, Christ Jesus, who was crucified to satisfy your wrath and your justice, was raised from the dead to conquer sin. Look to Him, the only one who has truly pleased you in every way, the only one who has perfectly obeyed your law and listened to our prayers based on his righteousness and not mine. Father, this morning I pray for physical strength. I would rather have 50% health and 100% anointing than to have 100% physical health and zero anointing. 
So, Father, would you speak by the power of your Holy Spirit through your word today to our hearts and transform us and conform us into the image of Christ as we anticipate the day when you will come again and you will make all things new. In Jesus' name, amen. Isaiah chapter 65, we're going to walk through this passage today, but as we've done every week in this study, I want to remind you of the story so far. And so we're going to have that on the screen just to remind you where we've been and what we're going to be looking at today. And so if you're, if you're new today and just joining us, uh, this will help you catch up. Um, over 11 weeks, we discovered that first God created a kingdom. And in the beginning, God made the heavens and the earth, and he declared that it was all good. And we see that because God is creator... He is also king over his kingdom. And yet, he made human beings to represent him in that kingdom. Adam and Eve, the first humans, rejected this call. They rebelled in Genesis chapter 3. And their rebellion led the entire cosmos into sin and death. And yet, the big story here is that in Genesis 3.15, God promised to defeat the serpent who deceived them through the seed of the woman, through the descendants of Eve. And we find later that this seed, more specifically, would come through the family of Abraham. And through Abraham's family, and specifically one of his descendants, Judah, that a royal line would be born. And through Judah's royal seed, specifically through David, the covenant blessings would come to the world. Not just to Israel, but to the entire world. And through David's family, there would be a line of kings that would rule over God's people. But we saw that because all people were guilty and deserved death, there was a need for sacrifice, as Lee talked about so well during communion, that the Mosaic law and the sacrifices revealed more clearly our need for a substitute. And we saw a couple of weeks ago that that substitute in Isaiah 53 would be the suffering servant, the one that God would send to die in our place, and that by his stripes we would be healed, he would be pierced for our sins. And last week we saw that through the work of the servant in his substitution and also through the work of the Holy Spirit to raise us to life, God would establish a new covenant and give lasting life to his people. And now today we come to the last section of the Old Testament that God will do all of this and fulfill all of these things in the new heavens and the new earth. And so as we read Isaiah 65 today, one of the main ideas of this passage, if you were to, if you were to, Sum it all up in one sentence. Here's the sermon in a sentence. You ready? This is what they teach you in, in, in seminary. You need to summarize your sermon in a sentence. And until you've done that, you're not done with your sermon prep. Here's the sermon in a sentence, all right? Even though the people of God have unfaithful sinners mixed among them, God is eager to bring his true people into their glorious eternal home. What you have during the, during the days of Isaiah, he's prophesying and the people uh, are in exile um, and, and in fact some of them are yet to go into exile and they're continuing to live in sin and through Isaiah's preaching he's promising that God is going to bring judgment on rebellious people. And yet in the midst of those rebellious people there is still a remnant, a small group of faithful people who love God, who are still worshiping God. And God promises that when he brings judgment on the wicked, he will save the remnant. And he is going to bring them into a glorious, eternal home. Now, you may remember Jesus told a similar story, right? 
If you're familiar with the New Testament, Jesus told a story about the wheat and the tares. Or the wheat and the weeds. And he tells a story that uh, there, there was a farmer and he had wheat that was growing up in his field. But among the wheat there were also what was called tares or weeds. They looked exactly like wheat except they were fakes. They didn't have the seed in them. They, they were phonies. And the servants, Jesus tells us, comes from the field and they say, Master, there is this field and we have wheat, but the, the enemy has sown weeds among the wheat. Do you want us to go ahead and just clean out all the weeds now? And the master says, no. Don't clean it out. Wait until harvest time. Harvest time here is a symbol of judgment day. Wait until the last day. And everything will be collected together. And then there will be a great separation. The weeds will be burned and destroyed. And the wheat will be gathered into the storehouse of the master. And so Isaiah is giving us a picture here of what that harvest will look like. And how glorious the storehouse will be. For those who truly love the Lord and are gathered to Him on the last day. All right? So let's look at Isaiah 65. And we're going to break this into three sections. And it's there in your notes. If you didn't get a handout, just we'll, we can get you one. But in your handout, you'll see that there are three sections to this text. And the first section is verses 1 through 5. And the first thing that we're going to see in Isaiah 65 is that the Lord will judge rebellious people who turn after false gods. The Lord is going to judge rebellious people who turn after false gods. Even though it looks like people are going to get away with it. It looks as if they're living in rebellion and God is doing nothing. God is going to deal with the wicked. In fact, in Isaiah, he actually asked this question. If you go back to Isaiah 64 verse 12, the last verse of right before this chapter we're studying. Look at Isaiah 64 verse 12. And notice the question that Isaiah asked God. He asked him, Will you restrain yourself at these things, O Lord? Will you keep silent and afflict us so terribly? In other words, God, are you going to continue to allow wicked people to get away with the things that, that they're doing? Are you going to continue to just turn a blind eye and sweep it under the rug? Are you going to let the wicked get away with their wicked deeds? And Isaiah 65 is the answer to that question. Now the first thing we see in verses 1 and 2 is that the Lord calls people to himself. That's the next blank in your notes. The Lord calls people to himself. And we see this in verses 1 and 2. Let's read this together. Isaiah 65 verses 1 and 2. The text begins with this. It's, God is speaking and he says... I was ready to be sought by those who did not ask for me. I was ready to be found by those who did not seek me. I said, here I am, here I am, to a nation that was not called by my name. I spread out my hands all the day to a rebellious people who walk in a way that is not good, following their own devices." We see this image of God. This is what's called an anthropomorphism. It's a big word that just means that uh, God as a spirit is given language of being a person. And it's the image of God extending his hands. 
And when God extends his hands in scripture, this is a a gesture of entreaty. He's extending an offer to people to participate with him in the covenant. To participate with him in true worship. He says in verse 1, I was ready to be sought. I am ready to be found. I said, here I am. Here I am. This is God extending himself to the people. Now when you read the New Testament, Paul interprets these two verses, verses 1 and 2, as God's extending the gospel to the nations and to the Jews. You'll notice in verse 1 that God is extending the gospel to those who did not seek Him. To those who were not asking for Him. He says, here I am, here I am to a nation that was not called by my name. Who is that? Israel was the people that was called by God's name. So who is it talking about in verse 1? This is the picture of God reaching out to the Gentiles, to the nations. And he's saying, here I am, here I am. This is is the argument that Paul makes to take the gospel to foreign nations. Because God is extending himself to people who've never heard of him. To people who aren't even asking for him. They're not even looking for him. And yet God is looking for them. God is seeking them out and he's saying, here I am, here I am. God is calling people to himself. And in verse 2 where it says God is extending his hands, he's really extending mercy and grace. But in verse 2, it doesn't apply to the Gentiles. Verse 2 applies to the stubborn, rebellious Jewish people. Look at verse 2 again. I spread out my hands all the day to a rebellious people who walk in a way that is not good, following their own devices. In other words, for the Jewish people, there has been no response to God's offers. They're not responding to Him. In fact, they've done the opposite. Rather than turn to God in repentance, they have actually done the opposite and followed a way that is not good. These verses anticipate the drama of the book of Acts, which we studied last year, as the spread of the gospel to the Gentiles. God takes the initiative to reveal himself to the nations, and though the Gentiles gladly receive the message, the Jews stubbornly continue to reject, even though God patiently extends the offer to them. And so God is calling people to himself. He's calling the nations. He's calling us. He's calling the people of Rome, Georgia. And he's also calling today even the Jewish people who continue to reject Jesus as the Messiah. Now, when it says that the people rejected him, how bad did it really get? Let's read verses 3 through 5. Because not only does the Lord call people to himself, the next... Uh, point in your notes here is that the Lord condemns superstitious practices. He condemns superstitious practices. And I want you to see, as we read verses 3 through 5, it's going to sound like the occult. It's going to sound like pagans. And I want you to remember that God is not speaking to pagans. He's actually describing Jewish people. The people of God. Okay, And here's what they were doing. Let's read verses 3 through 5. God has said in verse 2 that they walk in a way that is not good, following their own devices. Verse 3. A people who provoke me to my face continually, sacrificing in gardens and making offerings on bricks, who sit in tombs and spend the night in secret places, who eat pig's flesh 
and broth of tainted meat is in their vessels. Who say, keep to yourself, do not come near me, for I am too holy for you. These are a smoke in my nostrils, a fire that burns all the day. So what does the Lord accuse the Jewish people of doing? He accuses them of provoking his anger to his face. Verse 3 says that these people provoke me to my face continually. So according to verse 3, the Lord is thought of as, as being present. In some degree, he is there as the people offer these profane sacrifices. They are mixing Canaanite pagan worship with the, with the worship of Yahweh. And so God accuses them of provoking him to his face. This is blatant rebellion. And so the people of Israel in Isaiah's day had drifted very far from the Lord compared to like the days of worship under King David and King Solomon when he built the temple and there was true worship of the Lord. That's not happening right now, right? I mean, these people have strayed very far. You can see why God pronounces judgment on these people. But just how wicked had they become? What exactly was the Lord condemning? The second half of verse 3 says uh, that, that they were sacrificing in gardens and making offerings on bricks. These gardens where they were making sacrifices refers to places where tree worship could be observed. Among fertile places and in the valleys. And the expression altar of bricks, a lot of commentators study about what is so bad about Offering sacrifices on bricks. Because that in itself is not, not bad. But some take it that there were tiles of the houses that were meant to be the base for the offering to the host of heaven. There were, there were some things that were mixing in with Canaanites. This was, there were some superstitious things going on with the way that they were offering sacrifices. In fact, this word bricks can actually be translated if you move the vowels around in the, in the Hebrew word. It can also mean um, a certain type of tree that were associated with the underworld. And we're going to see this later, that the Jewish people were, were actually participating in necromancy. They were trying to communicate with the dead. So it makes sense. These people had gone way off, right? Basically, they were mixing Canaanite cultic worship with the worship of the one true God. And so verse 4 actually introduces this sitting among the graves for the purpose of necromancy. For the purpose of trying to speak to the dead. To try to get a word from dead people. These oracles from the dead were supposed to come by spending the night in the graves. Because the souls of the dead were thought to have haunted the tombs. Look at verse 4. It says they would sit in tombs and spend the night in secret places. And not only that. For the Jewish people, this next thing is pretty sacrilegious. They would eat pig's flesh and broth of tainted meat was in their vessels. They're eating unclean food. They're eating things that they, sh that they were strictly commanded not to in God's law for the Jewish people. Not to eat these things. It was believed that to eat these animals that were considered unclean would not be merely an act of rebellion, but a means of communion with supernatural powers. They believed that by eating these things and sitting among the dead, that these animals were actually totems, and that, that, that eating them was a religious act that allowed them qualities to communicate with their ancestors. You can see why this was outlawed in Israel 
This was not merely bad because they were eating meat that had turned bad. They were rebelling against the one true God. And we see these verse, we see the warnings here in verse 5. Look at verse 5. Notice what these people would say to people who had walked by them. They had been in the tombs all day and all night. They had been communicating with the dead. They had been making superstitious sacrifices. They had been turning to magic. And when people would come by them, this is what they would say. Look at verse 5. These people would say to others, Keep to yourself, do not come near me, for I am too holy for you. They were self-righteous, right? They, they thought that by their superstitious, cultic worship practices, that they were better than the other people, that they were somehow more holy than others who didn't participate. Now, we may read this and think, man, they went, they're pretty bad, right? I mean, this, this, is, this is about as low as you can get. But I want us to be careful. Because the truth is that the Israelites in Isaiah's day were not the only ones who struggled with self-righteousness. Right? Not the only difference between Israel and us today is that they thought they were holy because of their magic. While we think that we're holy because we're moral. We don't turn to magic, we turn to morality. I'm a good person. I live a good life. I didn't do anything really bad this week. I read my Bible every morning. I came to church and gave my offering in the offering box. And I came and took communion. I'm okay. And it's really easy for self-righteousness to creep in. Even among the people of God. Because we somehow might think that we're better because we did spiritual things. The reality is that self-righteousness was not unique in Isaiah's day. That same holier-than-thou attitude can rear its ugly head even in our own hearts. If you read the New Testament, Jesus is constantly speaking against the Pharisees and other people like the Pharisees who Jesus said trusted in themselves that they were righteous and they treated other people with contempt. You remember the story Jesus tells about the self-righteous Pharisee and you have this tax collector the tax collectors were really sinful people back then, and the Pharisees thought that they were better. And you walk into the temple one day, and you walk, you walk into church, and you see the, the Pharisee is, is up front, and he's real proud of himself because of how, how holy he is. And you have the sinful tax collector who comes in and sits on the back row, and, and he doesn't even want anybody to know that he's there because uh, he knows how bad he is. And he, he prays and he says, oh God, be merciful to me because I am a sinner. I don't even deserve to be here. God, I don't even want to lift up my eyes to you because I don't even want to look at you and your holiness because I'm so wicked and I know my sin. God, please be merciful to me, a sinner. And what does the Pharisee pray? The Pharisee is standing in the front and looks over his shoulder and says, God, I thank you so much that I'm not like him. And Jesus says, which one of you, which one of those men do you think walked out of that church justified? Which one of those men do you think walked out of church really right with the Lord? Who do you think was truly holy? It wasn't the Pharisee, it was the tax collector who cried out to God for mercy. Right? It, it's a lot easier to compare ourselves with one another than it is to recognize that we can't measure up to the standards of a holy God. But as Lee talked about today, and as we try to remind ourselves every week, 
It's only in Christ that we know true righteousness. It's in Christ that we have forgiveness of sins that come to us, not by our works, but through grace. It's because He stood in our place. As Lee talked about, it's because He was our substitute. We benefit from His sinless life and His sin-bearing death. It's because of His sacrifice that we face our sin and we bring it to the cross rather than try to somehow be good enough for God. It's only in the cross that we see grace that covers all of our sin and defeats the constant tendency towards self-righteousness in our hearts. What is, just in case you're tempted to be self-righteous, what does God say about self-righteous people? Look at verse 5, the second half of verse 5. God says, these are a smoke in my nostrils, a fire that burns all the day. You ever been in a smoky room before? Do you enjoy that? Something catches on fire and all of a sudden there's smoke. Do you want to just hang around? No, right? You got like this is awful. I got to get out of here, right? This, imagine the, the the smell of smoke. Like even when you're standing next to a campfire and you put something on there that burns up and gets real smoky, you don't just stand there and continue to warm yourself. You're repulsed by it, and the smoke in your nostrils actually turns you away. And this is what God says about the sacrifices of self-righteous people. It's as if smoke coming up into the nostrils. It repulses the Lord. What does it mean that smoke is in his nostrils? This means that they are the cause of fiery anger to the Lord. And they are to be judged by God. God condemns the superstitious. And so first we see here in Isaiah that the Lord will judge rebellious people who turn after false gods. This is true in Isaiah's day and it is true for our day. That God will judge the one who does not love God with all of their heart, soul, mind, and strength. God will judge the one who turns away from him as the one true God. But there's a second point in Isaiah and it's in verses 6 to 16. Second point we want to see is that the Lord will purge rebels and prepare the remnant for his return. There is an act here of separation. So let's, let's look at this. Verses 6 and 7, our first point that we see here is that judgment will fall on the wicked. Judgment will fall on the wicked. Let's read verses 6 and 7 together. Isaiah 65, verse 6. Behold, it is written before me, I will not keep silent, but I will repay. I will indeed repay into their lap both your iniquities and your father's iniquities together, says the Lord. Because they made offerings on the mountains and insulted me on the hills, I will measure into their lap payment for their former deeds. When God says, I will not keep silent, he is answering the question of Isaiah 64, verse 12. When, the, when Isaiah says, Lord, will you keep silent? Will you continue to over, let these people uh, go? Will you continue to turn a blind eye? God says in verse 6, I will not keep silent. Verse 6 says that it stands written before me. God says it is written before me that I will not let this pass. I will not keep silent. I will repay. When it says that it stands written, God means that this evil will not be allowed to pass without judgment. God will not let this go. He will not sweep wickedness under the rug. He will not keep silent, but he will pay back in full measure 
And the language Isaiah uses is in their laps. This is the idea of a, having an apron. And you, you pull your shirt up and all the judgment for everything you've done is going to be poured into your lap. It is, it is coming. And you will receive what you've done. The sins of the people as well as the sins of their fathers. Verse 7. Even the sins of their fathers that God has allowed to accumulate. He has overlooked it for a season. But he will not let sin go. All of it will be paid back. Their worship on the mountaintops was blatant idolatry. And it was profane apostasy. They had turned away. They would go up into the hills. They wouldn't go to the temple. They would go to the hills thinking that they were in secret. They would offer up false sacrifices. And it God and God said you will not get away with it I will repay this is a good reminder for us today when we see wickedness in the world and we see the results of sin and we wonder is God just going to let these people get away with it is God going to let everything go and the answer is clearly no there will be a day of reckoning God will repay it may not be today and it may not be tomorrow but rest assured that when the last day comes every account will be balanced every sin will be accounted for there will be judgment and no one will get away unscathed and so you can either face judgment in your own self and stand before God in your own strength or you can stand under the judgment of the cross and hide under the of Christ. Those are the two options for us today, but God will not let sin go. So don't, don't be discouraged when you see wickedness in the world. God will repay. Vengeance is mine, says the Lord. But not only will the wicked be judged, judgment will fall on the wicked, but there's a second promise here in Scripture, verses 8 to 10. The remnant will be saved. This is the good news, right? This is not all judgment. This is a sermon that's just, it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a text that deals with judgment and salvation. It's not all judgment. God's, he is going to judge the wicked, but he will restore and save the remnant. He will keep them. He will preserve them. The remnant will be saved. Let's read verses 8 to 10. Thus says the Lord, As the new wine is found in the cluster... And they say, do not destroy it, for there is a blessing in it. So I will do for my servants' sake, and not destroy them all. I will bring forth offspring from Jacob and from Judah, possessors of my mountains. My chosen shall possess it, and my servants shall dwell there. Sharon shall become a pasture for flocks, and the valley of Accor a place for herds to lie down, for my people who have sought me. What does this mean? Even though God's judgments will destroy the wicked, God will also bless His old covenant people by preserving a remnant. In verse 8, you see this language of a cluster of grapes. And it says in verse 8, As the new wine is found in the cluster, and they say, Do not destroy it, for there is a blessing in it, so I will do for my servants' sake and not destroy them all. Imagine a cluster of grapes, and there are, there's a lot of rotten grapes in the cluster, right? But there's a few good ones. A few good ones that good wine could be made out of out of these grapes. And so the point is that even though this cluster of grapes is so rotten that only the presence of juice in a few grapes keeps the whole bunch from being destroyed. The juice in the few grapes, the remnant, is the new wine that should not be destroyed. And so there is some good, so God will not destroy them all. 
We're told in verse 9 that when the Lord purges the rebels from the land, He will bring forth the faithful as the sole possessors of the blessings. Not everyone gets to receive the blessings, only the faithful remnant, only those who have stayed true to the Lord. Verse 9 says, I will bring forth the offspring from Jacob, and from Judah the possessors of my mountains. My chosen shall possess it. My servants will dwell there. They will receive the blessings. And what are the boundaries of these blessings? For the Old Covenant people, verse 10, it says, From Sharon to the Valley of Accor. This is the eastern and the western sides of Israel. And what God is saying, He's given landmarks to say that every area of Judah, all of the land will be their blessing. It will be all theirs. I will withhold nothing good from my people. They will get it all. So judgment will fall on the wicked. The remnant will be saved. There's a third point here. The rebels will be destroyed. The rebels will be destroyed. Even though the remnant will be saved, the rebels will be destroyed. Let's look at verses 11 and 12. God turns to the wicked now and he says, But you who forsake the Lord, who forget my holy mountain, who set a table for fortune, And fill cups of mixed wine for destiny. I will destine you to the sword. And all of you shall bow down to the slaughter. Because when I called, you did not answer. When I spoke, you did not listen. So the prophecy now turns to address those who have abandoned the Lord. And have spread a table for fortune. They have prepared wine for destiny. This is another way to reference false worship. And so imagine, this, these are people that are pulling out the Ouija boards, right? They're pulling these things out and they're offering sacrifices. They're, 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 turning to, they're turning away from the Lord. And so they had ideas of fortune and luck that were associated with the stars. And so there, there's a connection here with astrological worship. They were turning to the gods of destiny. And they would spread food before these people in ritual of sympathetic magic. They would turn to magic and say, oh, tell us our future. Tell us what awaits us. And so rather than trusting in the Lord and trusting in His sovereign rule and His care for them, the people turn to luck and they turn to the stars. So they wake up every day and they read the newspapers and they read their horoscopes hoping somehow that the stars would align in their favor and they were completely ignoring the fact that God had already aligned Himself in their favor to bless them. Instead of turning to His blessing, they turned to the stars. And God says the people who turn to these false gods will perish. They turned away from the one true God. They turn to destiny and God says your destiny will be for the sword. That's your destiny. I'll go ahead and tell you your future. You were destined for destruction because you have turned away from the one true God. And so that's the point of verses 13 to 16. The fourth point here is that different destinies await people. There is a right way for man to go and there is a way, a broad way that leads to destruction. Let's read verses 13 to 16 and see these two destinies. The end of verse 12, God says, When I spoke, you did not listen, but you did what was evil in my eyes and chose what I did not delight in. And now verse 13 through 16, here are the two different destinies. Therefore, thus says the Lord God, Behold, my servants shall eat, but you, the wicked, shall be hungry. Behold, my servants shall drink, but you shall be thirsty. Behold, my servants shall rejoice, but you shall be put to shame. 
Behold, my servants shall sing for gladness of heart, but you shall cry out for pain of heart and shall wail for breaking of spirit. You shall leave your name to my chosen for a curse, and the Lord will put you to death. But his servants he will call by another name, so that he who blesses himself in the land shall bless himself by the God of truth. And he who takes an oath in the land shall swear by the God of truth, because the former troubles are forgotten and are hidden from my eyes. So what do we see here? What are these, two, what are these destinies that we see that are different? The truth is that those destinies are the same for us today. You can choose to go your own way. There is a way that seems right to man and it leads to death. And yet there is a narrow way that leads to life. In verse 13, the Lord compares the lot of the righteous with that of the wicked. And so he says, while God's, in verse 13, while God's people will eat, the wicked will go hungry. While God's people will drink, the wicked will go thirsty. When God's people rejoice, the wicked will be put to shame. What is this language of, what does it mean that they'll be hungry and they'll be thirsty? They'll be put to shame. This means that they will be completely disappointed in their expectations. All of the things that the wicked have turned to to satisfy their hearts. They've turned to their own food. They've turned to their own drink. They've turned to their own sources of joy. And God says it is empty. It is a dead end street. And it will lead you to being put to shame. And you will never be satisfied going your own way. The things that they thought would satisfy their hearts will ultimately lead them to be empty. And I would say that to you today. If we turn our hearts away from the one true God, you will be empty. And it may be good for a while and you may think that your heart is satisfied, but eventually it will dry up. It is a dead end. The, the comparison continues in verse 14 where the righteous will sing out of the joy of their hearts but the wicked will be vexed in their spirits. Literally a shattering in their spirit. Your spirit will be shattered if you turn away from the one true God. In verse 15, the wicked will be remembered as objects of judgment. Verse 15 says, you shall leave your name to my chosen for a curse. But a new name will be given to the righteous in verse 15. A name of blessing. We see a hint of this in Revelation chapter 2, right? When Jesus says, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will give some of the hidden manna. I will give him a white stone. But here's what Jesus says. With a new name written on the stone that no one knows except the one who receives it. God's going to give us a new name. There's going to be, this is mysterious and we don't even understand all the blessings that this entails. But what we do know is that there will be blessings for the people of God. But there is judgment for the wicked. Finally, here in this last section, verse 16, the Lord's faithful accomplishment of the threats and the promises in these verses will lead His people to confidently appeal to Him, to fulfill a blessing prayed for, to avenge an oath. They will trust the Lord. Verse 16, that he who blesses himself in the land will bless himself by the God of truth. We will trust in the Lord. We will swear our oaths by him because all of the former things will be forgotten. The name of God will be revered in the land. God himself will be glorified among his people. The rebels will be purged. And the remnant will be saved. And what is all of this leading to? It leads us to this last section in Isaiah 65, verses 17 to 25, where we see that the Lord assures His people 
of a glorious future in the new world that he will create. This is what it's all leading to, verses 17 to 25. And I'm going to confess here, before we, we even read this, that commentators on this scripture and scholars differ about how to interpret this. Okay? There are different views of the end times, and I am not here to, to settle all that for you. Uh, some people, there's some language in here that sounds like there's going to be a, a literal millennial reign where Christ is going to reign with his people. Some people take this to mean that there's, there's gonna, this is the last day. This is going to be like the new heavens, the new earth where, where there's going to be no death. And yet we have to deal with the fact that death is mentioned here. So I'm, gonna, I'm just going to confess to you that there's a lot of scholars, a lot of people smarter than me who have different views on this text. And if you want to ask me what I believe, I really don't know. But I promise you, there is one glorious truth here that regardless of how all of this works out, we are, are going to be satisfied. It's going to be good, right? We can disagree on, on the finer points of eschatology or doctrine of the end times and still agree that Jesus is coming back, okay? So however you want to understand this, if, you, if you're amillennial and you believe there's a literal, uh, no, no millennial reign, if you're pre-trib and there's a rapture, or if, or if you're post-trib, or if you're, you're pan-millennial and you just think it's going to pan out in the end and you're not sure how it's going to work out, we can all agree, can we just say, I want you to verbally say it, that Jesus is coming again one day to redeem his people. Amen? Amen. All right, good. We're, we agree on that. So let's read. All right. Verse 17. This is our key text. Story of the Bible in 16 verses. This is one of those verses. For behold, I create new heavens and a new earth, and the former things shall not be remembered or come into mind. We can just stop there and say, I can't wait till that day, right? When the former things will not be remembered, when the new heavens and the new earth come. But let's keep reading. But be glad and rejoice forever in that which I create. For behold, I create Jerusalem to be a joy and her people to be a gladness. Jerusalem here is referenced not just as the city of Jerusalem, but as the city of the people of God for the new heavens and the new earth. Verse 19, I will rejoice in Jerusalem and be glad in my people. No more shall be heard in it the sound of weeping and the cry of distress. No more shall there be in it an infant who lives but a few days. Or an old man who does not fill out his days. For the young man shall die a hundred years old. And the sinner a hundred years old shall be accursed. This is part of the reason why we're not sure exactly when this happens. Because there are sinners present here in this new heavens and new earth. And we know that in the final new heavens and new earth there will be no sinners. And there won't be any death. And so we have to kind of fit this in somehow. And, and I'll just confess, there is some mystery to this. And that's good, right? We don't have it all figured out. Let's keep reading. Verse 21, they shall build houses and inhabit them. They shall plant vineyards and eat their fruit. They shall not build and another inhabit. They shall not plant and another eat. This is the threat of outside invaders. You're not going to have your home taken away. Everything you work for, there will be work in the new heavens and new earth. And it will not be in vain. For like the days of a tree shall the days of my people be. And my chosen shall long enjoy the work of their hands. This imagery of people being like trees. Trees are known to be old, right? They have longevity. Like if you're a Lord of the Rings fan, the Ents, the tree people, they were old, right? They, they were from the beginning of time. They just lived forever. In Isaiah, this is contrasted with people who are like the grass, 
that withers. The grass is here one day and it fades the next. But God's people in the new heavens and new earth will be like trees. There will be longevity. We will be here forever. Verse 23, they shall not labor in vain or bear children for calamity. For they shall be the offspring of the blessed of the Lord and their descendants with them. Before they call, I will answer. While they are yet speaking, I will hear. I love this last verse, verse 25. You've probably heard this one. The wolf and the lamb shall graze together. The lion shall eat straw like the ox, and dust shall be the serpent's food. They shall not hurt or destroy in all of my holy mountain. So let's summarize this text, this last passage, with just a few points here. The first thing that we see in the new heavens and the new earth, the thing, as we look at the big story of the Bible, what was the big problem? In Genesis chapter 3, we saw that because of Adam and Eve's rebellion, the world was cursed by sin and death. And so the first thing that we see in the new heavens and the new earth is that God is making things new. And so the first point here is that the curse will be reversed. The curse will be reversed in the new heavens and the new earth. God is going to make all things new. Everything that was broken in the fall. Everything that we see in this world that is wrong with this world. God's going to make all things new. We're not going to get colds anymore. We're not going to have a cough. We're not going to wake up sick. He's going to make all things new. People aren't going to get cancer. There's not going to be car wrecks or miscarriages. All of those things are going to be wiped away. God is going to make all things new. And so there's there's a few things. What all does that mean? What are some things we can look forward to? Number one, there'll be no more pain. No more soreness. Can I get an amen, right? No more soreness, no more pain, no more sickness, no more disease. There will be no more pain. Another thing, there will be no more sin. Can we just be honest? Aren't you looking forward to the day when you're not going to struggle with your sinful self anymore? Every day is a struggle and I'm confronted with the reality that I do need a Savior and that I am sinful. But I long for that day when I wake up and I don't struggle with temptation anymore. When that, fight, that enemy of sin is gone and I'm in a glorified body and I don't struggle and I'm not, I don't have to face the, the effects and consequences of sin anymore. I'm not going to be tempted. I long for that day. This this passage should create longing in your hearts for the day when you no longer have to struggle with sin. If you're truly in the faith, you you ought to be confronted with the reality of your sin every day. And if you're sitting there thinking, well, I don't really struggle with sin, you're probably not a Christian, right? Because the the difference between an unbeliever and a believer is that both of them have sin. The only difference is that the Christian struggles with sin. The non-Christian does not struggle with sin because they love it. They don't struggle because they embrace it. But if you struggle with sin, you're, you're probably in the faith. And it shows that you're fighting with sin daily. And in the new heavens and new earth, there will be no more sin. There'll be no more pain. There'll be no more sin. The third thing in the new heavens and new earth, there will be no more tears. No more tears. Verse 19 says that no more shall be heard in it the sound of weeping and the cry of distress. In this fallen world, have you shed any tears? 
You've been broken. Losing a loved one. Disappointments. Watching your wife miscarry the first time she gets pregnant and you lose the baby. Have you dealt with any of the stress, pain? Watched loved ones suffer from cancer? In the new heavens and new earth, no more ICUs, no more funerals. No more disappointments, no more bitterness, no more weeping. Verse 18 says, God will create Jerusalem to be a joy and her people to be a gladness. God will wipe those painful memories away. I long for that day. Finally, there will be no more pain, no more sin, no more tears. And ultimately, there will be no more death. No more death. The final enemy will be crushed. The suffering servant will be, he's been raised from the dead. He is the first fruits, the firstborn of all creation. Christ was risen from the dead. As a picture of us being risen from the dead in glorified bodies, we will never die again. Long for that day. No more death. Not only will the curse be reversed, another thing that we see is that we will experience eternal joy. Eternal joy. Verse 18, for behold, I create Jerusalem to be a joy and her people to be a gladness. I will rejoice in Jerusalem and be glad in my people. The, the point here in verses 18 and 19 is that our joy will not be rooted in streets of gold or in mansions. Our joy will be rooted in the fact that God is taking great joy in us. Our joy will be rooted in Christ and being in the presence of Christ. Our joy will be in the presence of God. That's where your joy will come from. Eternal joy. Not only eternal joy, but there will also be lasting peace. There will be lasting peace. Verse 25 says, The wolf and the lamb shall graze together. The lion shall eat straw like the ox. Can you imagine lions and lambs laying down together and just cuddling and snuggling with each other? That's going to have to take a new heavens and a new earth, right? For us to build houses and inhabit and not have to worry about things being stolen by invaders, there will be peace. As we look in our world, there is anything but peace today. I don't know if you noticed this first. The, the next point here is that the serpent will be crushed. Remember, all of this started from the deception of the snake in Genesis chapter 3. But I want you to read verse 25 again. Verse 25. The wolf and the lamb. Did y'all catch this? The wolf and the lamb shall graze together. We remember this part, right? The lion shall eat straw like the ox. Did you get the next line? And dust shall be the serpent's food. This is a hint that the serpent will be crushed. This is a hint at Genesis chapter 3 verse 15 where God told Eve through the seed of the woman, I will crush the head of the snake. Hasn't happened yet, but it's coming. And even Isaiah, he's still preaching. The seed of the woman will crush the, the head of the snake. It will happen and the dust will be the serpent's food. And so we conclude today with one final point. I told you that there's some mystery in this. 
I don't really know when this is all going to happen or how it's all going to work out. The truth is none of us know. But I tell you this, last point here. Despite our views of the last days, we can find unity about Jesus' coming back. But when Christ returns, I promise you no Christian will be disappointed. None of us will be disappointed. None of us, when Jesus comes back, are going to say, well, that's not how I thought it was going to work out. Jesus, you're not supposed to be here yet. There's supposed to be another thousand year. You, you didn't get it right. I, I've got the book of Revelation figured out. I, got, I know how it's all going to work. Jesus, you, you're not supposed to be. Nobody's going to be saying that, right? We're going to be like, he's here. He's here. Yes, he's here. And even until that day, we say, come quickly, Lord Jesus. If you want to come right now, please, by all means, come quickly, Lord Jesus. And until he comes, we say with the spirit and the bride, come. All who are thirsty, come. Come and believe. Don't be like the wicked. Don't perish, but believe in this Christ who has suffered for you. He has been crucified for you. He has been raised from the dead for you. And he promises eternal life and everlasting joy for those who follow him. But there will be judgment for the wicked. It is both. And for those who are the righteous, for those who are saved, for those who are in the faith, for those who have been redeemed, we look forward to that day when Christ will come again. And to that we say, come quickly, Lord Jesus. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for your word. Even though there are times when there is mystery in it, yet so much of it is clear. That judgment will fall on the wicked and that should lead us to repentance and a desire for those who don't know Christ to hear the gospel. And yet it brings hope for us who are in the faith. So today we look at this text with joy. And we look forward to the day when we will experience eternal joy, free from pain, free from suffering, free from sin, free from death. When we worship in your glorious presence for all eternity. And so today, Lord, make this worship service a dress rehearsal. Let us worship now as we will when we get there, when you come again. Father, if there's anyone here who's not in the faith, would you bring them to repentance? Would you help them and lead them to repentance of sin and put their faith and trust in Jesus alone to save them from the wrath to come? And for those of us who are redeemed, for those of us who are trusting in Christ, fill us with your joy. And give us your hope for the day when Christ comes again. In Jesus' name.